we're going to, um, so we finished there at chapter 19. You know, after God went and found them having his pity party in the cave, I believe, at Mount Sinai. Uh, and then he left there. Uh, God told him to go anoint three people who would finish the task of, of ridding the land of the pagan worship, at least for now. Rid the land of the pagan worship and the false gods and false idols and false priests. And then you saw at the end, he went and anointed one of them. He anointed Elisha, who would be his lieutenant, who would be his follower. So if you have your Bibles open to you, we're going to jump all the way over chapter 20. If you um, uh, read chapter 20, it sounds like really confusing military exploits. And it is. It's between Ahab and uh, Ben-Hadad and the Syrians and... Yeah, but Elijah's not mentioned in that section. In chapter 21, uh, the text we're going to be looking at this week, and um, well, this week, the text we'll be looking at this week, you'll notice Elijah's not going to be mentioned. But it is the event that brings Elijah back into the story. So Elijah comes back into the story. Um, next week, but you got to see what happens in the life of Ahab and Jezebel that's going to lead God, and I think you need to think about this as you look at this story. This is the story that's going to lead God to say, enough. I've had my full, my fill of Ahab and Jezebel. And that's why at the end of the story that we're looking at today, um, Next week, you'll see Elijah return and speak, speak judgment on uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And then from there, we'll watch Elijah ascend to heaven and we'll watch the, the death of Ahab and Jezebel. So let's look at the story of what it was. And I keep saying that because you already know Ahab did some really bad stuff. Jezebel did some really bad stuff. This is the text, though, that finally says, God says enough. Um, God's Spirit will not always strive with us. At some point, God will let you have, let us have what we want. C.S. Lewis, at the end, there's two kinds of people. Those who have said to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God will say, thy will be done. So finally, Ahab and Jezebel are going to get what they have been living for um, after this story. So keep that in mind because as you look at the story, and I'll try to help us out with this a little bit, it's obviously it's a terrible thing that Ahab and Jezebel does, but obviously it's more terrible than it appears. Um, it is the straw that broke the camel's back in a sense, but it still is, 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 is more horrible than it appears. It's where Ahab steals Naboth's vineyard. Um, it just sounds like, you know, a hostile takeover. But it's, it's, it's worse than that. So look at chapter 21, uh, beginning at verse 1. So uh, this, this occurs from verse 1 through verse 16. Again, Elijah's kind of in the background. By the way, between where we left Elijah and then where Elijah's going to show up after this event, uh, there's probably five or six years that's passing 
in Elijah's life. We know a lot about the reign of Ahab, by the way. So we know as five or six years pass, um, not sure where Elijah's at right now. He's off the scene. He's off the pages of Scripture. Uh, God might be continuing to deal with him. Uh, you know, God began dealing with him in a new way there uh, when he was having his pity party uh, on Sinai or Mount Horeb. But Elijah's off the scene. He's been off the scene for an extended period of time. Because, again, you've got to have all these, mil- you have to have time for all these military exploits to take place in chapter 20. So, chapter 21. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, you've got a valley called Jezreel. That's where Megiddo is, if you've ever been there and been to Megiddo. Jezreel is like the valley of Megiddo. Jezreel, Valley of Megiddo is part of it. Jezreel is this long kind of plain valley up in the north. Again, Israel's the northern kingdom, uh, the northern ten tribes. Uh, Jezreel's a valley. There's also a city there that we're going to go to in just a second. The city of Jezreel. Uh, we've mentioned before that Ahab and Jezebel, their palace was in the city of Samaria, in the region of Samaria, which was the northern part, what was called Israel. But he had a summer home, a winter home, a winter home um, near the coast where you got a good breeze. Uh, it was only 25 miles from his other home, but 25 miles was further then than it is now. So he, uh, he, he, he's, he's going to be in Jezreel. So we know it's summer. You know, it's summer. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel. We don't know much about Naboth except he has a vineyard. And if you read between the lines, he's a devout follower of the God of Israel. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. You already know it's not going to end well. That's all you need. It's not going to end well. Verse 2. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. So it doesn't sound terrible. Uh, Ahab says, I'll buy your vineyard or trade you a better vineyard for it. But he, he wants the vineyard. He wants the vineyard. Um, But verse 3, But Naboth said to Ahab, King Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Um, Again, um, this is is behind everything you're watching in Israel right now. The, The Hebrew people, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, believe God gave them that land. God gave them that land as part of the covenant. In the book of Joshua, you see them distributing the land, allocating the land to tribes and families within those tribes. So these people that received the land, the land, not just any land, but the land, these people who received the land is a religious, covenant, spiritual um, reality in their lives. You know, it's just not buying a piece of property. So this land has been in Naboth's family since land was allotted to the tribes and the tribes gave land to families. So um, it's almost a religious duty. It really was a religious duty. 
um, to care for that land that God has given you, to keep possessing that land and to care for that land that God has given you. So Naboth knows that. Naboth knows that. It's a matter of faith for Naboth. And that's why he just says, um, the Lord forbid, he literally means the Lord forbids it, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. This is ancestral land, ancestral home. But Ahab wants it. And Ahab's not used to not getting what he wants. Here's where you see the personalities of Ahab and of Jezebel. Look at verse 4. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen. I don't use either sullen or vexed very often. Uh, give me some more English translations. Angry. Upset. Resentful. He's pouting. Oh, he gets worse. It's obvious he's pouting. He's going to go to his bed and... Uh, yeah, he's going to face the wall. Or Eugene Peterson actually translates that he buries his head in his pillow. Um, because that's probably what we do when we pout. But yeah, so he's, he's vexed and he's sullen because what Naboth had, had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. Yeah, look at Ahab. He lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. I mean, that is a kid pouting. Yeah, he's not getting what he wants. Um, then verse 5, but Jezebel. Now, you know, I, I apologize if I'm approaching being sexist, but... Ahab is your stereotypical henpecked husband. We know who is the domineering one in this relationship. We know who the power of the thr- power behind the throne is in this relationship. We know who has the stronger personality in this relationship. But also, and this is why God's going to say enough eventually, Jezebel, keep in mind, she's not Israelite. Ahab is. He should know better. He should know the law of Leviticus. Ahab should know better. Now, Jezebel is Sidonian. She comes from the Phoenicians. Uh, Her father rules on the coast. They are Canaanite, if you want to call them Canaanites. They're not Israelite. And one of the big differences, if you ever get a chance to read Thomas Cahill's, this was really, really, really popular a few years ago, Thomas Cahill's The Gift of the Jews. I encourage you to read it. You can skip the first hundred pages because he summarizes the Old Testament. That was the New York Times bestseller, The Gift of the Jews. Uh, So you can skip over the first hundred pages because he's writing to pagans, and they may not know what's in the Hebrew Bible. So the first hundred pages, he's sort of telling the Jewish story. But after about page 96 or 97, he starts getting into the gifts of the Jews. Um, and you, every day of your life, you benefit from the gifts of the Jews. And that book helped people realize that. For instance, most ancient cultures, and where you see it now is like in Hinduism and Buddhism, um, everything is a cycle. Everything's a cycle. You know, you got dharma, you got karma. You keep going through these cycles. If you do good enough, you might break free from the cycle and end up in nirvana. But a lot of the ancients thought that everything was just a cycle. 
It, life just keeps repeating itself. One of the gifts of the Jews, and most people think this way now, history has a beginning, history has an end, and history has an in-between. History's going somewhere. There's going to be a climax to history. So that linear thinking captured the West. It hasn't captured the East because of Hindus and Buddhists. But in the West, we tend to think, I had a text this morning again, uh, is what's happening in Israel, the end, sign of the end. So the fact that this person talks about the end to history, that's a Jewish thing. Another Jewish thing is that you had a law. Law of Moses. You had a law that was given. Keep in mind, in Jesus' day, when lawyers speak to Jesus, the only law there in the land was the law of Moses. They had a law, which means they had a lawgiver. It takes a lawgiver to have a law. So monotheism is a gift of the Jews. The fact that God gives a law is a gift of the Jews. Um, we are still trying to learn. If you think about things like Magna Carta, we're still trying to learn that everyone is under the law, even a king, even a president. Everyone is under the law. The ancients did not, particularly the ancient kings and queens, did not have any concept that they were under the law. That's why Jezebel is going to say to Ahab, aren't you the king? Get it. Well, that's Canaanite, that's Phoenician, that's Sidonian. Uh, maybe in, like some modern Americans I know. But everybody is under the law. Even the monarch is under in Judaism because God gave the law, 613 commandments. Uh, you know the ten, the 10 big ones, but there are 613 commandments. So God is a lawgiver, and the king, that's what Magna Carta was all about, 1215, where they finally made King John in England admit there was something above him. Because kings have this way of thinking it's all about that. Human beings have this way of thinking it's all about them. But kings particularly think it's all about them. Well, Judaism, they have laws. So um, Ahab should have known the law of God trumped him. Jezebel's Canaanite. In that world, and that was the whole pagan world, the, you know, it's good to be king. Remember what movie that came from? Say it again. No. Yar, King and I, thank you. I know some of you are older than I am. Yeah, that's your Brenner and the King and I. Who kept saying it's good to be king. Um, but anyway, so yeah, in most cultures it's been good to be king. But in Judaism, there was a law and a lawgiver above the king. So that's why Naboth could say, God forbid, according to God, I shouldn't give you this land. Well, that didn't sit well with, with Ahab, who is Israelite, but he's king. It's certainly not going to sit well with a Canaanite queen who has no power above the king and queen. So look at verse 5. And this is probably her personality anyway. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you can eat no food? Uh, he, he, he probably answered, I'm pouting. Uh, verse 6. And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, you need to hear him whining as he says this, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. Um, you know, if you've got money, you can get anything you want. Uh, and he answered to the king, I will not give you my vineyard. 
So there's Ahab pouting. Verse 7, And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Aren't you the king? You know, you're the head honcho, you're the boss. Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you. Now this is Jezebel, you see her personality. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Um, as a Canaanite queen, she had no problem. And obviously you know this from the whole story. She had no problem exercising, existing, functioning outside of the law. Law of God. didn't matter to her if it was anybody's law. But she had no problem functioning outside of the law. So she just told Ahab to get his act together and she'd take care of it. Now watch how she takes care of it. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name. Legally, we call that what? Forgery. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. Yeah, forgery. And sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And I'm sure they want to keep king, queen happy. And look what she wrote. Verse 9. And she wrote in the letters... Proclaim a fast. So here she is using Jewish religion for her purposes. Now the reason I say that is, um, I haven't done it here, but everywhere I've ever been, I usually do a sermon series on um, Ten Commandments. Just to see who gets nervous on that adultery stuff. <laughs> um, you know, we know that commandment about you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. Now, when I was growing up, I was kind of taught that means don't cuss with God's name. And I'm sure it probably includes that, but if you take that commandment and just boil it down, minimize it to taking God's name in vain, meaning use it in a disrespectful way, you're missing a big part of that commandment. Um, If you look at the commandment or look at, people I respect who have written about that commandment. There's lots of ways you can take God's name in vain. You can speak disrespectfully of it. You can, you, there's lots of ways you can take. But probably the worst way you take God's name in vain is when you use God's name for your purposes. When you use God for your ends, for your selfishness. Um, you know, when you go to somebody and say, God told me to tell you, you better make sure God told you to tell that person something. If not, you may be taking God's name in vain. You're using God. You're using the person and the character of God to achieve what you want. That's what Jezebel's doing here. Call a fast. Yeah, she's, she's, she's using God. She's using religion. She's using the law of Moses, of which she cares nothing about. But it helps her get what she wants. Jeff, what about the ones like you see on the club, TV or, or Facebook or whatever, and they say, God came to me in a vision last night and told me to tell y'all. They had better be <laughs> sincere about that one. I mean, the book of Acts. Well, in the book of Acts, there's six visions. I believe in visions. You know, but let me offer you this. In the book of Acts, there's six visions. I think I'm right. Every one of those six visions were given to somebody like Peter or Paul regarding something Peter or Paul should do, not what they should go make somebody else do. 
you need to be real careful because you might be using religious language to manipulate people. And I think that's breaking the commandment about using God's name in vain. I think it's done a lot. You know, I'm grateful and nervous every time I hear a politician say, God bless you. I try to be grateful. I want to be grateful. I hope they're not taking God's name in vain. I mean, I know Nixon said it, but I've heard some of those recordings from behind the scenes with Nixon too. So I, I don't know. I can't see a human heart. But yeah, you don't use God's for your pur- God for your purpose. Now, I know all of us probably fell in that trap with raising kids. Um, they used to, um, in the in Victorian era, which I like the Victorians, I like the Puritans. Um, I know culture sort of overreacted to them. There was a practice in the Victorian homes that they'd put this big painting of an eyeball in their kids' rooms to make sure they knew God was always watching. Not a bad idea, but again, you got to be careful about using God for your purposes. You, that's what Jezebel's doing here. So she's already committed forgery. You know, start checking off the list here. She's committed forgery. She's using God for her purposes. She doesn't care about prayer and fasting. Believe me, she does not care about prayer and fasting. But you, re- you see what she's wanting to accomplish here. Anyway, so the letter, the letter she sent out to the officials was, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. Now, let me tell you what historians think is going on. Because why, why do you proclaim a fast and then invite everybody to come to dinner? That just seems weird. Well, probably what's happening is when a king or queen proclaimed a fast, and this has even happened in American history, it was because they were facing some major crisis. We had, a fa- we had fast days during the Civil War. Uh, there's probably some crisis, there's probably some issue, there's an enemy army coming, there's something. There's, there's some important news. You know, I'm always amazed these news broadcasts. Every night they come on by saying, we have breaking news. So I guess they mean any news that you haven't heard is breaking news. It was like, I used to collect old newspapers. You, you know the name Hearst? I used to collect old newspapers, and I have a lot from the 20s and 30s and 40s. And if you had... and I didn't have that many, but every Hearst newspaper I had, oh, it had a big headline. He would find a big headline. You know, that's, so you, you know, that's, that's kind of what you called the fast for. There was some crisis. The monarch got the people's attention. They all came together. The monarch's going to say why we're claiming a fast. Well, that's what's going on here. So when you proclaim a fast, when the king proclaims a fast, they must be having, there's some big crisis on the horizon. Uh, and again, remember chapter 20, they've been fighting the Syrians. So there's some crisis. Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. So get the crowd. Verse 10, this is Jezebel uh, giving orders. Uh, I'm sure she did that well. Here's Jezebel giving orders. And set two worthless men opposite him. Uh, if you have a study note, it may tell you the literal Hebrew there. Two sons of Bilal. Uh, do you know who Bilal is? Two sons of Bilal. Um, one, one place in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6 chapter, 
Paul actually references Belial. So by Paul's day, they, they knew who Belial was. It's another name for the devil. Uh, that's why Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Belial. Uh, so worthless men, um, literally um, sons of Belial. Give me some other, because I, I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll tell you in a minute how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. If, uh, but give me some, any other translations beside worthless men? Scoundrels? Troublemakers. Eugene Peterson translates it, paraphrases it, stool pigeons. <laughs> so set two worthless men. And again, watch this. The book of Deuteronomy said, and you see this played out all throughout the Scriptures, you have to have at least two witnesses to proclaim something. Not one witness doesn't work, you have to have two. So she, she's following the law of God. <laughs> set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed or you have blasphemed against um, God and the king. So that was going to be the charge. Just set somebody near Naboth. Naboth probably never opened his mouth in this crowd of people. But have two people that will go to the authority and say, He, he, he cursed God and king. Um, then take him out and stone him to death. That, um, that was the punishment for blasphemy. Um, and, the men in the, of, and the men of his city, the elders and the leaders, these are the, leader, these are the nobility in the city. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as is written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And these two worthless men came in sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. Uh, they took him outside of the sea and stoned him. That's in case you missed it the first time. It's just being repeated. And stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. You know, I, I'm watching these two worthless men I'll make a confession to you. One of the things I do when I don't want to think um, is I, I still record one of my heroes. And, I, and they're reruns. I know they're reruns. I still record Judge Judy and watch her. <laughs> you know, I, did, I love Judge Judy. You can tell she's Jewish. It's in her blood. And, you know, sometimes it is more, it is more than obvious that somebody's looking straight at God and Judge Judy and the cameras, and they're lying. People lie without any, any regret, any twinge of conscience in this culture. Christians shouldn't be able to do that. I mean, they really should not be able to do that without the Holy Spirit really convicting them is the word. But anyway, so I wished it would have been harder for Jezebel to find these worthless men to bring a false accusation against Naboth. It probably wasn't that hard. Okay, look how it ends. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. So yeah, 
the stupid guy wouldn't trade it or sell it, and now it's just going to be given to the king. That's sort of what Jezebel's saying. Uh, as soon, and here's, the, here's how it ends, um, before Elisha comes, we'll do that next week. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Poor fellow didn't even say what happened to him. <laughs> I, I mean, he is so... I'm not even sure what word I want to use for Ahab. He didn't even question Jezebel. He didn't even ask what had happened. Um, he just goes and takes possession of it. So here is both of them, the Israelite king and the Canaanite queen, you know, um, uh, disobeying God's law, refusing God's law, breaking several of the commandments from forgery um, to, to taking God's name in vain. You can call it hypocrisy, using religion for their purposes, to, to murder, to plotting a murder of, of someone. Um, I think that's why at this point God says enough. Yeah, it's time for Ahab and Jezebel to ride off into the sunset. And that's where you get to in the next verse. Elijah's going to show up and, and make it clear that judgment's coming. Um, God's patience has worn out with Ahab and Jezebel. So um, that's why it's probably a worse act, this stealing the uh, Naboth's vineyard, is worse act than, than it appears. I mean... I mean, I, I know people who just lose property because of the right of eminent domain in government settings, and they want to go to this text. And, you know, sometimes property can be stolen from you. There can be hostile takeovers. But there's, there's religious, spiritual stuff going on here with the law of God, and um, particularly the fact that, mo that um, the law of Moses, according to Ahab and Jezebel, are beneath them. They're not beneath the law of Moses. And that brings, that brings the beginning of the conclusion. So, questions, reflections. How would you define Jezebel and Ahab? If you're going to write your fictionalized book telling more of the story of Ahab and Jezebel. Yeah. <laughs> she had made a good godmother in organized crime. She, I'm sure she had the habit of getting anything she wanted and doing whatever it took. And she's probably upset that Ahab hadn't learned how to do that. He just goes and pouts. She has to take care of things. You know, I, I hear some spouses who think they always have to take care of things. Well, Jezebel, I'm sure, felt like she always had to take care of things in that, in that relationship. Um, and see, it's not just about the makeup that Jezebel wore, by the way. Um, I heard about that growing up as a kid. That's why he couldn't wear makeup because she was famous for her makeup. Um, I, I wouldn't replicate her design, but the issue with Jezebel is not just her makeup. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot wrong with Jezebel. How big a town or a city was this way back in those days? We act. Go ahead. Well, it says the elders and the nobles, the nobles who live there. Well, if it's a relatively small community, wouldn't they have known who this man was and thought, 
wait a minute, you know, what's not right? Or was it just the fear of the king and the queen that you didn't dare, you know? I'm sure that when the, it. it would have been small, and I'll tell you in a minute why I can say that. It had been fairly small, but when the king and the queen says he blasphemed God, I'm sure everybody went, yes, he did. <laughs> And uh, we actually, they actually, archaeologists actually have excavated uh, uh, Jezreel, the city uh, of Jezreel. And there are the ruins of a pretty, for, the, for this century, um, there's, there are the ruins of a pretty spectacular palace there. But again, in the ancient world, you know, a large city would have been 2,000 people. Um, you didn't have many big cities in the ancient world. But yeah, I'm sure it's fear king queen, and um, and I'm sure that if um, if the king queen did not live in Jezreel as their winter home, the economy would have tanked. There wouldn't have been nothing in Jezreel. Actually, that's not true. Jezreel, if you ever go to Israel with me, sits on sits along a major international trade route that goes right through the um, Valley of Jezreel, which is why Armageddon is the Greek version of Har Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo. There, even, up, even, even as late as World War I, there's a major battle on that plane uh, between uh, Great Britain and the Ottoman Empire during World War I. So Jezreel actually is, is seated on a major trade route that has seen a lot of history a lot of warring history, so it's not a stretch that the final battle will happen there. Um, but I'm sure if, if they had not chosen it as their winter home, the economy wouldn't have tanked, but it would have taken a hit. So I'm sure the nobles there, they're, they're following the king, queen, you know, because, well, one, who they are. They, they didn't usually end well for people who didn't, but uh, people also do things to protect their pocketbook, their livelihood, that they shouldn't sometimes. Well, maybe it's just the fact that here in America, we have the right to speak out. You know, now, I might not like what my neighbor is speaking out against the government against, but, you know, you know it, it, it's just amazing to think that in, even now in the 21st century, you can't speak out in other countries. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it, it's just amazing. Yeah. And you know, that's why, that's why I made the point about the gift of the Jews. You know, if you, go to, if you go to Athens, somebody's going to tell you that is the birthplace of democracy. And in some ways it is. But here, way before the rise and the glory of Athens, the Jewish people had created a system. Um, I, mean, if, I mean, yes, to create a system where the, whoever's ruling is under the law. God, the lawmaker, and the law is above you. Even, think about the commandment. Oh, another commandment got broke here, by the way, is the, thou shalt not covet. Um, he's coveting Naboth's vineyard. But even when you look at that, you're going to think governmentally and historically, when the Bible says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbors, et cetera, et cetera, property, the Bible has just affirmed the right of private, private property. So Judaism gave, I mean, it's not common sense throughout history that everyone has the right to own their own property. I mean, some people think the government owns it, the monarch owns it. That's why Jezebel, if, 
the king, once he's dead, he has the right to go get it. Monarchs had amazing power. So the Jews, you know, they had kings under law. They didn't act that way. I mean, none of the kings of Israel were good. Only a couple of the kings of Judah were good. But there was a system in place that said people have the right to private property. Uh, you know, David did not have the right to Bathsheba. He did not. He might. Oh, glad you said that. Uh, his sons will get it. That's why, as a good Reformation Protestant, all these people say, oh, everybody can interpret the Bible the way they want to interpret it, which you just put 2,000 years of church history out of work. I mean, in Second Kings, there's a sentence that says all of Naboth's children were sons were killed also. You don't get it here. You get one verse. I'm sure if you have cross-references in your Bible, beside, um, beside probably verse 14 where they, where, or where they stone, where, one of the verses where they kill uh, Naboth, there's probably, if you look, if you have a cross-reference, you should have a cross-reference, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 26. Because that's just where it's dropped in the text. It wasn't just Naboth killed. Because you're exactly right. If there had been other people to inherit it, but when there was no one to inherit it, it's logical. The king got it. Um, oh, no, 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 no. But there, was, but there were laws in place to try to, to, try to corral human nature, particularly those human natures that became kings and queens. Uh, there was a law in place to try to protect that. Yeah, as, as Reformation Protestants, we believe we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Yeah, I mean, we'd have never got out of Jerusalem if we'd all believed, well, everybody can make the Bible say whatever they want it to. I mean, there's, you can do that in some places, but, you know, Naboth got killed. I, I can't interpret that any other way. I mean, Naboth got killed. It did not end well for Naboth. I, I don't know how you read this text. There's some wiggle room. But, you know, it's pretty obvious what's being told you right here. So you can't look at all texts and say, well, everybody can have their own interpretation. So, I mean, if you think Jezebel's the hero and Naboth lived, I'll tell you, you got some issues you need to check out. That's not what's... It's pretty clear here. Jezebel is not a hero and Naboth died. I mean, we have a doctrine among Protestants, and I love this because I just love saying it. We don't even use the word anymore. There's a lot of, we, we've written a lot about the Bible over the last 2,000 years, but we have a doctrine called the perspicuity of the Bible. Now, that's a word we don't use. But if you look it up, it means you can understand it. It's not a mystery, it's not a code. You don't have to have a theological degree. God wouldn't speak to us in code, God wouldn't speak to us. Um, you know, in, in a mysterious way. We believe in the perpiscuity of the Bible. It is, it is a lot of it self-evident. Not all of it. You know, not all of it. Like I, I had to sort of talk about why you call a fast and then tell everybody to come together. So some of it's not self-evident. But yeah, Jezebel, bad person. That's self-evident. I mean, we believe, we believe the Bible does not contradict itself. We believe the Bible uh, is... Perpiscu, perpi- the Bible is understandable. 
Um, we believe that the Bible, I mean, we, we, we've talked about this book since it's been the center of our faith for, for 3,500 years, or for Christians, 2,000 years. It's been the center of, so we've talked about this book. And that's why when somebody walks up and says, you know, it, everybody just interprets the way they want to. Well, they went, they were, they're, they're four of my degrees went out the window. Don't tell my mother she spent money. <laughs> you know, if everybody can just, yeah, I mean, there's some things that are obvious here. Um, but yeah, I hope you pay attention to your, 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 your cross-references. Sometimes those cross-references can take, yeah, his kids, his sons were killed too. Um, which, you know, so a, a Hebrew reading this probably knew that because Ahab gets the property. They had said the exact same thing, Sue. Where's his descendants? Well, you know, that's why somebody later on put it in 2 Kings that Naboth's descendants uh, got killed too. Well, it's time to quit. Um, so next week, we finish up this chapter. And then... Um, Are we reading next week? Wait a minute. That was a good question. Um, I, 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 how many of you are going to be gone on Monday? I'm not meeting on Wednesday, but I, I figure I'll be here on Monday. Yeah. Because what I would love to do, I mean, we're, we're in the short rows, as the farmer says. I would love to finish Elijah quick. And we can finish Elijah probably, I don't know, I'll, I'll, we'll talk a lot about the death of Jezebel. Um, maybe two or three weeks. Anyway, we'll be finished with Elijah by the time we break for Christmas. So... Let's pray together.